Hey, and welcome to Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush, the podcast where we get to know the scientists behind the research to find out that they've had an amazing career in both industry and academia to change the world for the better, and that they've even been on Family Feud, or that they have a deep, passionate love that's new for pastrami sandwiches. This man is a genius. Maybe the last one is me, the host, Ben Rush. Is a genius. Genius. I want to give a quick shout out to my new friends at this podcast called Is This Science? Hosted by the self-proclaimed sassy Allie and Caitlin from my old school of Indiana University, Bloomington. So they like to discuss all things science and have fun doing it along the way. I think they're a great casual way to find out more about the world keep you curious, and keep you laughing. So go check them out. You can find them on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Twitter. Another organization I'd like to shout out goes to Mums in Science, who reached out to me after listening to one of my podcasts. It's a great organization that supports women in STEM going through changes with parenthood. It's open to everybody. You can post jobs. You can find jobs. You can get connected and get supported from people across the world. A great resource, and I... Can't wait to work with them in the future. I'm very excited to have you here with me. Beth Olson, our guest today. Yeah, that Beth Olson, the one in academia, Beth Olson, is with us today to talk about breastfeeding, the challenges of trying to get new moms supported, studying that, and then some random questionable games later on where I'm doing a choose-your-own-adventure based on dietary choices. It's strange. I think you'll like it. Cool. So without further ado, let's get to it with Beth Olson. Beth, thanks for joining me on Deeper Than Data. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. All right. I'm going to just start by asking your name and the pronouns that you prefer. My name's Beth Olson, and I prefer he... (laughs) You're going to edit, right? (laughs) Yep. (laughs) My name's Beth Olson, and I prefer she, her, hers. Okay. Moving on next to uh, your physical description, if you could provide me what you look like. Okay, I'm pretty average looking, I think. For a woman, I'm about average height and weight, short, uh, somewhat artificially blonde hair, um, middle-aged, glasses. Yeah, that's about it. Okay, great. And what are your positions and roles on campus? So here I'm in the Nutritional Sciences Department, and I am called an Associate Professor and Extension Specialist. Cool. Yes, and I'm excited to ask you about your combo of uh, both being a professor and extension specialist. Uh, I don't think that's often what people hear or that even people within academic setting can have a mixture of roles that they carry out. Uh, but I will, I will get to that. Um, with people on the show, too, I will ask to give uh, me a two-minute research pitch, which seems to be the hardest question out of everyone. 
So you could provide me with the two-minute research pitch. That'd be great. So the main areas in which I like to do research are around helping families feed their babies. So that's gone in two directions. One is working on supporting mothers and their families to breastfeed their babies for as long as they want. That has taken the form of working with a peer counseling program for low-income parents, as well as working on projects around women who are working and want to combine working with breastfeeding. The other area that I've done research is doing nutrition education and then using it in an intervention for families with a baby. So this is feeding throughout the first year, not just breastfeeding, but um, if they're choosing to use formula, how to use that, and then um, how to introduce complementary foods and such to begin that transition from baby to a member of the household eating the foods that the family eats. So those are my two, I would say, main areas of research. I've had students who've had other interests that were close or related, and they've done other projects, but this is the areas in which I have preferred to focus. Yes, and very important areas. I'm curious how you got there, but first I'm going to start by going back and asking my favorite question of who was your first crush? Romantic? Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're getting the hot gossip on oh, here. And so this is where it comes out how old I am, because that's many, many years ago. You know what? I don't remember his name. I was in high school. I was probably a freshman. So he was maybe a junior. And I think he was a friend of a friend. And I asked him to Sadie Hawkins and he said no. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so that was it. That was the end of that crush. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's very transactional back in those days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no gray area. I'm not saying I didn't have a grade school crush, but man, I just can't remember that far back. Yeah. That's fair. Um, and not that there's anything wrong with being older and you can't remember your grade school crush, but that that is actually where I want to start. Um, I'm curious if you were interested in science uh, from the very beginning or if it's something that you transitioned to. Uh, did you find yourself like playing outside, um, being curious about how the world works? You know, I don't remember that. What I do remember was, I think it was the first biology class that I had in what was then called junior high. It had seventh and eighth grade in it, in my town. And having biology and just being fascinated. Um, that science always stayed life science because I do remember in high school having, you know, geology or geography or, I don't know, earth science, and I could have cared less. <laughs> I just didn't care about inanimate objects which I feel bad about because I spent all of my academic training avoiding learning anything about that. And now I actually am interested in all of that, but yeah. <laughs> I pay attention to the classes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, and did you keep going on the track of living things uh, past high school into undergrad? Yes. I um, kind of out of, not a lot of information. I had advanced chemistry in high school and we had a unit called biochemistry. And I thought that was really interesting. 
I wanted to major in biology as an undergrad, but some family members said, well, you'll never get a job if you just have an undergraduate degree in biology. And so I thought that biochemistry sounded more like it would get me a job. I had no idea what that job was, but it seemed like it would be there. So I picked biochemistry as a major. Uh-huh. And it sounds like, did you, did you have support from family members or friends that knew the sciences a little bit before you launched into a career? Um, my family was not, my immediate family was not, but I had um, an uncle who was a surgeon and one of his daughters eventually went to medical school. I had a cousin who was in science. Eventually she got a PhD. Um, another cousin who got a PhD in biology, actually a PhD in biology. Um, so there was, it was around, not my immediate family, but I had other family members who were in science and health. Yeah. And I feel like that rubs off. I've growing up, I had an uncle who studied ornithology and still does a bit, uh, out in California. So it was always fun to have him come into town. You know, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, around the holidays. And not only was just like a fun personality, but you could geek out on birds and almost like you, anything living really into it yeah we also like fossils though the the oh, dead living things were appropriate really right? living. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's where you draw the line um yeah so i in reading a little bit more about you you did your undergrad at uw madison and then hopped to california mm-hmm. and how was that transition for you did you know anyone out in california <laughs> not a soul so we but when I was an undergraduate at Madison, I um, went and I got a job in one of the labs in the nutritional sciences department, where now I work as an undergrad. And I took as an elective in, <clears throat> in my degree, nutritional biochemistry. So that's where I thought, okay, because I have to say, honestly, the biochemistry was interesting, but I just didn't see how I was going to apply it anywhere until I took nutritional biochemistry. I still didn't know what I would do, but I thought maybe I could teach because I was so impressed as an undergrad with the good teachers, how much I learned from them, how a subject I didn't think I would like or would be good at, I did well at, and how discouraged I was by teachers who weren't very good. And so I thought, well, I could do that. I, I think I could teach, you know, better than some, maybe, <laughs> which is why I decided to go to graduate school. So I went to the chair of the nutrition department and I said, you know, because this was in the dark ages before the internet, um, and said, where, like, what, what are good programs? And they told me, my advisors in biochem tried to get me to go into biochemistry, saying, oh, you can do nutrition there. But I, ju I think I knew at that time, I just thought, you know, it's going to be different. It's going to be different there than it would be over in nutrition. And I believe that I was right. So one of the programs um, that came up was Davis. So, you know, I had no idea where that even was, <laughs> but I applied and I got in. Um, and so about a week after I got married to my husband, we packed up our wedding presents in a rider truck and drove across the country to Davis. And he was in business and still is, I yeah. think. Was yep. he able to work while you're going to school? Yeah, he worked. Um, it was actually fun. <laughs> For us, because he worked in companies when cell phones began, 
I mean, truly began where people didn't, ordinary people didn't have them. Were, you know, people in um, certain companies would have them or companies would have phones that you would check out. So even when he worked, he worked with one of the very first, you know, major cell phone companies, we would check out a phone and, you know, take it somewhere because even the people who work there didn't have them. And it was back in the days where there were all these little cell phone companies all across the country. So you didn't have, you know, this seamless nationwide network as they advertise today. It was you roamed, you moved on to someone else's network and they charged you back a high price. And um, so he worked in that for years. He worked for it a little while when we moved back to Michigan. So it was just fun to see the evolution of, you know, when he first got a phone it was that big thing that looks like a brick. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it was, he's more technology oriented. But you guys got to be the like cool, hip young people. Not only like, were you learning in school, but you got to flash around these cool toys. Yeah. Although we would go like out to lunch with people he worked with and they'd all put their bricks on the table and I would be like, oh, that's so embarrassing. You're just showing off, you know, you're showing off <laughs> the cell phone because most people don't. And then I think the first phone we got was a car phone. You used to get a phone and it mounted in your car and then there was a big antenna um and you didn't carry it around with you you know but yeah it was fun so he worked and i went to graduate school i don't know if this is going to make you feel any better but i don't think i've seen a car phone ever in life but just in movies yeah exactly exactly and, and it sounds too going back to like your specific path um you know, and I, I, this is something about me too. And I think part of the reason why I wanted to start this podcast is you really do notice the difference in between uh, great instructors and the ones that just aren't up. I don't want to say up to snuff, but uh, maybe not be as passionate or able to con communicate as effectively. Mm -hmm. Did you start, was that the, the seed for you to go on to communicate more? Because you're not only do you do the research, but I've, you know, I've seen, uh, writings by you, blog posts by you, and you've been on local television stations to promote nutrition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I like to do that. It wasn't, um, you know, that's also not where I started. I thought I was going to, you know, be a professor and teach mostly. And um, what research, you know, I understood they did research because I worked in a lab, but I don't, I didn't truly, I don't think you can until you actually kind of get in there and more in depth yourself. But when I didn't end up, after I graduated, going into academia to begin with, um, a lot of what I did was still communicating on all kinds of levels. And then, of course, in extension, um, again, I wasn't really trained to do that work. I, people that were in extension worked with me to help me learn how to talk, but also like how to write at a sufficient level, how to understand you know, what motivates or try to understand what motivates people now, which might not be what I think is important about nutrition or motivating. Um, but I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I, I want to get to that. Um, I'm going to back up a little bit too, because you mentioned you did your grad school at Davis and then you came to Michigan. Uh, was that a postdoctoral position slash industry? It was industry. It was not a postdoctoral. Nope. I went, I didn't do a postdoc. Okay. But you were in industry for a couple of years. Seven. 
Seven years. Just, yep. a, just a couple. <laughs> <laughs> a couple seven. And yeah, what did you do in industry? Um, I worked for a Kellogg company, Battle Creek. You know, they make cereal. Um, they, they make other things too, but and they did while I was there. Um, I worked for the first five years in basically in research and development, but instead of product development, we were the research arm, the science arm on nutrition. So we developed projects and then would contract with universities to do them to show the benefits of cereal or fiber or fortification, um, track trends to tell the company, you know, like, hey, trans fat is not good. We ought to be looking at getting out of that in our products. Or um, when folic acid started to kind of rise up in terms of science, um, we did a lot of work looking at what the role of fortified foods and fortified cereals were in intakes. And cereal is a good source of folic acid for a lot of people. So promoting that, um, we presented at science meetings, um, would interact with scientific societies outside the company to understand their positions, um, that kind of thing. But then the last two years, I worked in the US business directly. So R&D was global. So we provided support around the world, but the US business, of course, was US business. So I would help them with whatever nutrition marketing campaigns they wanted to do around their mm -hmm. products. And it was, was it around this time when you started becoming more interested in breastfeeding in the culture about it, how to help younger mothers and new mothers, really? Um, yeah, because I had um, my first child while I was at Davis, where they did breastfeeding research. People at the public pool, you know, would sit on the grass and breastfeed the baby. I mean, it was just everywhere. And you didn't have to think about it in that way. And then when I got to back to Michigan, you know, people covered up or you just wouldn't see them. And then I had an experience where I had my, um, the first of two kids that I had while I was at Kellogg. And I went on maternity leave. They built, a, um, they were building a brand new R&D building and we were moving into it. And they moved in while I was on maternity leave. So I called over when I was going to come back to work to the department secretary. And I said, you know, where's the lactation room in the new building? You know, I knew where it was in the old building. And she said, that's a good question. Let me find out. <laughs> so she called me back and she said, Beth, you aren't going to believe it. They forgot. <laughs> of course. So what they did is they took all the handicapped stalls in the restrooms and put in a little flip down seat and an electrical outlet. That's where you were supposed mm. to pump. Wow. Yeah. So I ended up... Um, just on, a, I don't, I don't know how much of this you're going to want to put in because it's kind of a long story. But I ended up flying around with my vice president and our chief health officer because there was a big, huge nutrition effort, a pro whole product line the company was going to do, and I was supporting it from the science end. And we needed to. There were some issues, and so we flew around to the thought makers around the country. And this was right after I came back from maternity leave. And one of the reasons we got to fly around in the company plane is my VP went to the head and said, we can't fly out to California and stay overnight. Beth has, you know, a brand new baby and she's breastfeeding and she can't do that. We have to have the company plane. So we got it and I had to pump. So I went into the bathroom, which I mean, was like a lounge. It was beautiful. Um, 
And they both felt terrible. One was a physician and one was this VP. And they said, that's so terrible. You have to pump in a bathroom. I said, well, that's what I do in our building. And they were livid. They had no idea. So they said, you know, well, I'm going to go talk to the facilities director. And so when we got back, I went to the facilities director who prior to this had told me there was no place in the building to pump. And one of the reasons was it was an open concept building. It was all glass. Nobody had a private office. We were in cubicles. The conference rooms were glass. The vice president was in a, you know, an open cubicle out in the middle of the floor. There was no, in the office side, there was no space. So when they um, were going to come after the building director, I went back and I said, well, now they're both coming for you. <laughs> Maybe we should talk again. So I ended up supervising a um, the build out of what had been a bathroom in our lobby into um, a lactation room instead. But the whole time I used it, the whole time I used, then I transferred to our headquarters when I went to the US business and it didn't have nearly as nice of a space, but nobody there um, was breastfeeding. Nobody else used these rooms with me. And I began to think, well, where, women were having kids all the time there at the company, where, where were they? So I only encountered one woman the whole time and um, she waited for me outside the pumping room one day because she was struggling to, to maintain her milk supply and she wanted help. Well, here I was, you know, my end of two or three kids. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know how to help her. I'm not a lactation consultant. So when I went back to academia, finally, I thought, you know, I'm going to look at why are, you know, what's done with breastfeeding women and working and that. I found out nothing, hardly, was going on. There wasn't any research. So it was an open area to look at then. Yeah, and that was around 2013? So 2003 or so, three, four, yeah. Okay, all right, that's good to know. Um, yeah, even then too, you know, it's 10 years prior to 2013, but you'd think people would be investigating this. Um, and when I, when I was doing my master's of public health MPH, um, and it was a couple years ago, back in 2013, uh, did you hear that? I said a few, cause it was seven, just like a callback from a couple minutes ago, which is like the greatest callback of all time. So you're welcome. He didn't even get the callback, right? This man is a genius. Thank you. Genius. You know, I was doing a concentration in epidemiology and was still having some backlash among my colleagues for reasons to breastfeed kids mm -hmm. um, and having it really accepted. And I think this was just spurred from having a woman breastfeed in a cafeteria, essentially, uh, where we were eating and some people are uncomfortable with it. Um, yeah, I think it's a really strange phenomenon that we still have this hesitation to something that's really natural. Yeah, I belong to um, an international organization that does breastfeeding re research, more so in um, human milk, you know, composition, how diet affects it, how it affects the baby and the baby's health, the mom's health. Um, but a number of people there do international work. There's a little less work that was done there, say in developed countries, although some on support for moms. But we meet every other year 
except last year, um, in different areas of the world. And one of the things, so I've gotten to visit places I probably wouldn't have been high on my list or I might not have got to otherwise. And what would really amaze me if, you know, I remember flying into an airport, I, I'm going to say Peru, but I'm not positive. And coming through, you know, the checkpoints as you're coming out, <laughs> there was a woman, she had her baby on the top of like a standalone garbage can and her breast on top of that. And she was feeding them, waiting for somebody to come through. <laughs> and the other one I remember was I got on a bus somewhere. I think this was in Australia or a subway or something like that. And there was a young woman um, breastfeeding like right in the first seat. But what also struck me is not that they were doing it, but people just walked on by, you know, they could have been eating an apple. They just didn't care. It was just like, well, that's what you do. Whereas, I, you know, there's still just so many places in the U.S. where it's thought you should go to a different room, cover up, you know, you can do it, but we don't want to see it. Right. Yeah. How did you feel like when you're going to a different culture, you're seeing that it's so commonplace and integrated in society and then having to come back to the U.S.? It's frustrating. You know, you think, what, what? is the big deal. I, I think there's people historically who have looked at it. I have not spent a lot of time figuring out, um, you know, we're, we're in some ways kind of prudish in our society, I think. Um, and we're, but then I think it's also probably somewhat hypersexualized and that breast became a very sex, sex object kind of thing. And then therefore when a baby was on it, that's pretty disturbing to people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, I know there's been, I think with larger tech companies, um, I believe Radiolab did an episode about this, just the uh, policy about images, which ones were acceptable, which ones were not on Facebook. And there was a huge fight around breastfeeding. And then it divulged into the details. You know, At some point, it was okay if the baby was carrying, uh, covering the whole areola, uh, but not if it wasn't, but then it, you know, it was like partial. And it's, yeah, it just got so specific about what was okay versus maybe we should have been considering the whole grand scheme of like, why are we so, sh like you said, prudish about breastfeeding to begin with. So the Radio Lab episode I'm mentioning is called Post No Evil, which you can Google. Just do Radio Lab and Post No Evil. You'll find it. It's great. Yeah, yeah. And I know there's, um, you know, I've listened to women who, breastfeed and they'll go to another room and they cover up because they say, well, I, you know, I don't want to make feel other people feel uncomfortable. And I, you know, so I respect that. I, I feel it's too bad that they even have to think about that T to be honest, because I had my first one in Davis and everybody did. I just didn't ever think about it. I breastfed wherever I was, whenever they needed it. <laughs> I don't think there's a place in, you know, on earth. I did not breastfeed. And I never noticed that anybody was looking at me funny, but I think I didn't look to see if they were looking either. I just didn't, it didn't even dawn on me that somebody might think this wasn't a good thing. Yeah. And it's really interesting to hear just like you're, you're traveling between a few states within the U.S. Just attitudes were so different. Oh, yeah. 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 So I had my youngest. So my second youngest was, um, you know, kind of kindergarten age or so, a little bit younger. And so he was walking with me. He came over to campus to, with me for some reason. I must have had to pick something up. And we were walking out, and he said, well, what do you do, Mommy? Well, try to 
describe professor to a, you know, research <laughs> yeah. and extension, especially to a kid. So I'm telling them, you know, I, I help, um, I help, I'm going to try to help moms who want to breastfeed. And he said, oh, I know, I know how you feed a baby mom. He said, you either feed the baby with the mommy's breast or you pump the milk out in a bottle and then you feed it to the baby. <laughs> so that's what he thought was normal. Then I had the youngest and he was, um, I took him to my lab. I think this might've been at, it wasn't here at Wisconsin, it was still at MSU. And there was a picture up of a breastfeeding mom. And he said, oh, is that ever icky? And I mean, I just about died, but he was the youngest. He didn't see a sibling breastfed. And I thought, well, I guess he never sees it because, you know, they don't show it on TV. Everybody in Michigan would cover up. You know, we didn't have family around us at that time where there would have been someone breastfeeding. So I just thought that was just a, such a contrast in what one little kid saw versus the other. Yeah. And like you said, it's not really represented in the media. So when new mothers have a baby, I feel like there's a lot of stress about the correct way to breastfeed because it's not a natural part of society. Um, and when I was working at the health department before joining grad school um, and talking to the lactation consultant there, she would you know, have a lot of questions from new mothers about the right amount, uh, attachment, you know, and it was obvious that a lot of the mothers were stressed about this. Yeah. And you know, it used to be that when most people breastfed back in the day, before my day, you know, your mom would have breastfed, your sister, your cousins, your neighbors, your best friend. So you had all these people who had done it, who could show you how to do it. When I do the lecture that I do for our introductory class, I talk about it as a culture of breastfeeding, um, which actually a nurse practitioner wrote a nice article about it of, you know, you used to have a culture of it. And then over time we lost that culture. And so someone chooses to breastfeed and they don't have any help because their family didn't and they don't know how. And they, I think it also probably was a little caught up in, you know, when my mom, when my mom's mom had her on the farm, her family was all around her on the neighboring farms as were the neighboring farm women who came over and brought food and showed her how to raise the baby. But, you know, when I had my baby, I was across the country from my mom. You know, we, we became mobile, these family units that would have gathered around you just aren't as some, in some cases aren't as um, frequent. So you don't have that kind of support sometimes. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and now who knows, it might be even, worse in some ways that, you know, I could pick up for my postgrad and start a family in France, uh, you know, in a year or something like that. And it's going to be really hard to get my family from Ohio to come help in France. Yeah, exactly. Although in France, I think more people probably breastfeed. They're a little more open there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They'll probably have some good support for me. Not, yeah, not the worst random country I could have picked for sure. How long have you been appearing on TV? to give recommendations about healthy eating. So that, that really started when I came to UW. I didn't do much of that at Michigan State. I don't know why. It just, it didn't start out that way and I didn't think about it. But my predecessor had done, you know, um, pu more public speaking, the person that had the job before me here at UW. Um, and so, you know, you get on a few lists and people start calling, I guess. So I did 
early on, I did a few more TV interviews. I would say I haven't done as much recently. It picked up during COVID. I've done more radio, so and mostly public radio. So here, either the morning show or in the evening, you know, they have different names here. Um, but also Larry Mueller has a show at noon. Um, and he asked me to come a few times. And now when I see something, I'll send it over to him. And I'll just say, would you like me to come over and talk about this? Because I think this would be a nice topic for listeners. Um, in fact, I'm going to be on at the end of March about the new dietary guidelines. And I just, I just feel it's a good way to to reach people. It's also a good way to promote the university, to promote the research done at the university, the research done by nutritionists, and to promote extension. So I also see it as positive for our um, science, our department, our university as well. So, and the topics that you send, are you thinking of just the topics that may relate to the most people or reach the most, the broadest audience? Well, I do it different ways. Um, anything really big. So the U.S. Dietary Guidelines, you know, it did get some press when it came out, but that's, you know, it informs all nutrition programming in the United States. So it's a pretty big thing. And it usually has something in it that's a nice catch. So that's what I'll do for the end of March is um, I've read them. But I'll reread it and kind of flag some interesting catch things. In other words, getting on every time and telling people to eat fruits and vegetables and whole grains gets old pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes there'll be something unique or a way they phrase it or a concern they have that's more catchy. Um, so I do that. If it's of interest to me, you know, to be frank, sometimes because it's more fun for me to research it if I'm interested in it. Um, I avoid, you know, I've been asked a couple times to talk on topics and I just say, you know, I'm not qualified and I will do my darndest to find them someone else, but I don't, I don't want to get on and talk out of my, you know, um, skill set. Um, but also if I don't know, it would take a lot of time to prepare, um, to talk about stuff. So, uh, just to give you an example, I've been asked about things that are really more toxicology related. Yeah. They're in food we eat. But, you know, that's a whole different science about how you calculate levels that people can be exposed to. And I don't know it well enough. Um, I could prepare something, but if I got asked a question, I'd be up a crick. So, you know, I just try to avoid things that, um, that are just too out of my wheelhouse. Right. Yeah. So if, if someone came to you and said, well, I heard eating three papayas a day is going to prevent me from getting cancer ever. What do you have a typical response? I have phrases I use um, and they, they just vary on the question. So sometimes people will call up and say, well, I did this and I lost all this weight. And so, you know, often for something like that, I'll say, well, I'm glad you found something that worked for you. For the general population, that wouldn't probably be something I would recommend. What I would recommend is, and to be honest, I learned more about what I do say from when I worked at Kellogg Company, we had media training. I will often write, because um, this is what we did in media training, here's my three key points. So if nothing else, I can say those. And then the trick is with something bizarre, if I'm asked or off the wall or just, you know, inappropriate or whatever, how to turn that question into what are my talking points. So a typical would be, you know, I'm glad 
you know, or I've heard that. I don't believe there's much science around that, but where there is a lot of science is, and it's not just to not answer. It's also because sometimes answering a very off the wall question doesn't really help the general population. I want to get out the messages that are going to help most people while still being respectful. Right. And sometimes even just reverberating the question can solidify it in people's brains, even though it's not backed by any science. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious with all the, the skills that you got from Kellogg, the pivoting, how are the arguments uh, in your family? Everyone's got arguments. I'm just curious, like, are you, are you poised and ready? <laughs> no, because, you know, when you're with family, it's emotional. <laughs> You've got a connection with them. The person calling on the radio, I don't know from Adam. You know, I don't want to offend them or anything. I want to help them, but I don't have a personal stake in them. Um, you know, where I have a personal stake in my family. So, yeah, no, I'm not nearly as good there. I don't win nearly as many uh, <laughs> arguments as I'd like. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, who who does? Uh, but you know, it's probably humbling also to lose a lot of arguments just as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm we're we're I'm really the science person, not uh, the biological sciences. I have a daughter who's in the more psychology area, um, getting her PhD, so she's in that science. And then my husband and my one son are more business related and another son's more fashion related. So the other thing is we're so diverse that we're often asking each other about the thing that person knows about versus arguing about it. Oh, that's fun. Okay. So now I feel like I've gotten to the point where I've got kind of a good sense of your career path. And now I'm going to start asking you questions that are a little bit more reflective. Um, over your career, is there any piece of advice that you wish you knew at the beginning? I honestly can't think of anything because what I think is hard is if I look backwards, maybe there were things I would have done differently, but then I wouldn't have had some of the experience I have, which I really valued. So I wouldn't be willing to give those up. So, I mean, one of the things I thought about is maybe I should have, you know, given the interest in helping people, maybe I should have gotten an MPH instead, but then I probably wouldn't have gone to Davis which was a lovely place and we made great friends and I loved the lab I was in and, you know, maybe then I wouldn't have gone to Kellogg and that was a fascinating experience. So I think, yeah, I can't think of any, if I am giving advice, I tell students to be flexible and open, you know, that just because you do this job or take that postdoc doesn't mean you're there forever. You can shift. I shifted. You can move around. It's not the end of the world. Um, so to watch for, you know, unique possibilities and, and consider them, or, you know, I would have a lot of students, they'd say, well, I'm not going to apply for that internship because it's too far away. And I'd say, it's, it's a year, you know, you would be gone from your family for a year, you know, you can fly back. And forth. I just, some of them were so restricted in what they were willing to look at for even a short period of time. And I just said, you know, it'll be a great experience. You could live in, I think it's helpful to live in a different area of the country <laughs> to realize that the entire country is not like, you know, Wisconsin, <laughs> or Michigan, or, you know, so tr try to be more open and flexible in their thought. Yeah. So at the beginning of this whole interview, I told you that I, in high school, was doing a lot of music composition. And that's actually what I applied to do for my undergrad. Uh -huh. And I was 
I was playing saxophone for maybe six years at the point when I was applying. So when you apply for music composition, at least the places that I applied to, the, they want you to have a strong compositional background and also be strong on an instrument because you'll still be playing in bands and whatnot. And oh. I, at that point, I was done playing saxophone. Oh. And I kind of <laughs> hated it. And it, I think part of it was because I found out the saxophone I'd been using for years was actually broken, but I didn't know. And so part of me was like, oh, I'm actually kind of not the greatest player. And also I literally can't do some of the stuff. Um, and then, you know, I think my senior year I found out, oh, it was broken this whole time. Um, so I was like, okay, done with the saxophone, but still really love music composition. But I got rejected from everywhere and pivoted to psychology and neuroscience eventually. But my, my dad refused to let me t go to the university in Cincinnati. Um, I think like, like you, he moved in his 20s to San Francisco and just found it to be such a pivotal point in his life uh, to go somewhere new, experience something new, uh, get away from family and form your own identity. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you. Like, I think that was one of the best things they could have told me uh, is get outside of your comfort zone and try something new. Yeah, yeah. You could deliberately say, I'm going to go somewhere and be out of my comfort zone. But then when there's opportunities presented and you say no to them, I think... Oh, that's even harder. Like, here's this neat chance for you to learn something new. And, you know, it's not forever. And I, I, I appreciate your answer, too, um, when I was asking about you know, the piece of advice, because a lot of the times when you fail, you have this new opportunity to learn something new, um, mm -hmm. with, whether you like it or not. Often, oftentimes you don't like it. Can you think of any, quote unquote, failures that were really pivotal in your development? Gosh, um, I failed so many times, it's hard to think of one that was pivotal. Um, <laughs> I think one of the things was failing some early, not dramatically, was probably good. We, in graduate school, we were, um, we got a pop quiz. Yeah, pop, I didn't think they give those in graduate school, but they gave us one. And everybody failed it. You know, everybody failed it. So we were walking back to, because um, it was in another building. So we were walking back to our main building where most of us had our labs. And there was a friend of mine and she was just going on and on about how she couldn't believe she missed it. Had she thought about this? And she just couldn't believe she didn't get that. And I said, well, look at it this way. You'll never forget that again because, you know, it made such an impact failing. And she said, oh, I wish I could think like that. And I said, well, haven't you failed before? And she, <laughs> she said, actually, no, no, I've not failed before. <laughs> I said, well, you know, you get used to it. Um, but, you know, she was just so, it was a quiz, like, and, and we all failed it. So you knew it wasn't going to affect anybody's grade. And, you know, so I was like, well, you know, I'll never forget that point now that we failed. Of course I have now, because I moved out of that nutritional bio. <laughs> but, um, but she just was, she was so focused on the failure because she didn't fail. So I, I guess I don't have a pivotal one. I just feel like stumbling all along the way was probably good for me. And then I feel like that starts to build your personality for going into science because I feel like more than 90% of your time, you're going to be failing at something, especially if you're doing anything novel. Yeah. Well, I did. Um, recently, someone was asking about 
an advisor saying something to you and whether it had a big impact. So I did a study with rats on um, as part of my dissertation and I got no differences between the groups. You know, that's just so not fun. <laughs> you get no significant difference. But um, it was, it happened to be, it showed a pattern. Um, it was a postprandial study. So how they were, how their dietary fat was being handled after a meal, um, depending on what kind of fiber they got. And we measured their um, apolipoproteins, it was. So the proteins on the outside of the, um, of the lipoprotein particles over time, and it had been measured previously in our lab, but the person had made an error in how they diluted and how they did their standards, so they couldn't, we couldn't use that. So, you know, I was so bummed because it wasn't significant. And she said, well, look at it this way. When, you, when we publish it, this, you'll be the first person to show the lipoprotein particle pattern, um, the apolipoproteins, postprandially in the rat ever. You know, it's the first report of that that I'm aware of. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so I think that was, you know, the way of kind of looking at, so this piece didn't come out how I wanted, but look at this thing I did get. And it was interesting. Beats me if anybody else thought it was, but <laughs> we did publish it and it was the first postprandial apolipoprotein pattern in a rat. <laughs> yes, that whole thought process has saved me, I think, on having some unmotivated days where I'm like, I've been working on this manuscript for like months and months and months, and I can I can recite it word for word, but it's like, yeah, I, I know it by heart, but no one else does. And it isn't, it's, although it may be ever so incremental in the, in the advance of science, it is something completely novel. Um, okay, I'm going to ask you a personal question. What is a personality trait you really like about yourself? And I'm going to follow that with what is something that you'd like to improve? It's always hard to talk about yourself in a positive way or what you like. You don't sound braggy. Um, and I did just say that. You can brag on this as much as you want. I asked for one, but you can give me 20. I, uh, I just did say this and I, I was doing a talk for a program that we have. And of course, they're all online now. And I said, well, I don't mean to sound braggy. <laughs> It's all these older adults. It was along the lines of saying, if I haven't heard of it, it's there's probably not much to it because I I really try hard to hear most things that are going on, even if I don't know the detail. Um, so, like about myself, I think I'm pretty positive, pretty happy generally. When I am down, I I feel it pretty acutely because I'm not usually. So it's a not a fun feeling. <laughs> it's not fun for anyone, but it's not like it's usual. So, um, yeah, I have like blown up or fallen apart and people around around me will often be surprised especially if they don't know me well they'll say oh gosh i never i didn't think you ever got upset i didn't think you ever got mad it's like oh yeah i do but just that's not a way of life right which can also still be kind of a dangerous assumption too it's a lot of pressure to keep on someone not not saying like you're getting this pressure uh, but i felt at some times in my life, I'd, I'd identify the same way. I'm usually pretty positive and easygoing, uh, but also sometimes feel pressure to keep that going. And I, I don't know if you, if your positivity has made you seem like a rock to others. I feel like in my life it has, and then so there's not always there is, or at least there's some discomfort about kind of sharing. Like, no, I'm actually having a rough day, and I need yeah. someone else's support. 
No, I agree. I agree. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'd fist bump you if I could. <laughs> right now. That's positive people. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. I'll ask you one last personal question, then we'll go on to our game. Uh, what is something you did recently that's uncharacteristic of you? Holy cow. We're in COVID, so it's not like you can do something uncharacteristic. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I'll do, I'll do, uh, I don't know if you heard, We our family went on Family Feud. Oh, no. <laughs> I had no idea. So that was maybe two years ago. It was pre-COVID, that's for sure. Um, but that would be something, I, I, it's not that I wouldn't go on. I just wouldn't have ever initiated it. I wouldn't have done that, yeah. But she was, I don't know why, she decided we should be on. So she lined up the interview. You have to interview to be on. You can't just be on. <laughs> you, have, you have to perform. Um, and so we interviewed in Milwaukee and got called back and then got called out to LA and went on and we sucked. I'm going to be, yeah. we sucked. <laughs> and uh, the thought was that probably we were, I don't want to say we were too smart. We thought really hard about the answers and we shouldn't have been, we should have been, we should have realized they pull 100 average people, not 100 PhD and PhD candidate. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that was a little uncharacteristic. I mean, when she got us it, I said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll go along, but I wouldn't have ever, you know, gone for that. She wants us to go on the prices right next, but. <laughs> next. Okay. Are you up for it? We more, yeah. Well, we'd all like to actually win something. You, know, since we did so <laughs> yeah. you need some retribution. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I'm glad I asked you that question. I, 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 was that publicized at all? Well, I didn't because, you know, I was like, I don't know if I want people to see me on TV. After, one thing is you sign something saying you won't say anything about it until it airs. So even if you win, you can't tell people that you win anything until it actually airs on TV. So for one thing, you know, so, and then they don't, you don't know exactly when it's going to air. So you don't find out a lot ahead of time. It was in our, um, the Wisconsin State Journal. Um, and, and a few people just kind of randomly said, was that, was that your family? <laughs> One of the things is we use my husband's last name, which is also my son's last name, but not mine and not my daughter's. So not everybody connected the names, you know, in the journal article, cause it said Williams family and I'm not a Williams. Um, so not everybody connected it with me, but, um, r randomly someone, <laughs> I, uh, I have in the past volunteered, on. Um, for voting um, on the day that we vote, you know, work the polls. <laughs> I did go in after that. And the head poll worker who, who I'd, you know, I'd seen her maybe twice before the two previous elections said, are you the person that was on family? <laughs> and I saw the paper. I thought that looks like her, but it was the wrong last name. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So made some interesting conversations later. Yeah. And who would have thought people were that dedicated to Family Feud, too? Like, that's not my world at all. But yeah, well, that was it. That's one where you think, you know, okay, you got to take time off. You know, it's fun, but, you know, is it worth it? But seeing how they produce a, you know, how they produce the show was also interesting, you know, just to, to see the whole way it worked and, you know, it was fun. Hearing that your son and your daughter have two different last names. I'm curious how, and you know, 
pretty personal, so you don't have to answer it, whatever. Um, but how has having two kids with two different last names worked out? Because I've thought about like the naming process. You kind of got like academics would probably want to keep their last name. I tend to be attracted to academics, so I'm wondering if I meet a woman, she's like, I want to keep her last name, which I'm in full support about. That doesn't bother me at all, but I don't know what to do about the kids. Yeah, you know, it was harder when our daughter was born. She was the oldest. We've got three. Um, in that it wasn't as traditional back then, first of all, for a woman not to keep, not to take her husband's name. So there was just simple, like, paperwork stuff or getting the utilities at your house or whatever that assumed everybody had the same name. So there wouldn't like be room to put two last names or sometimes they just wouldn't let you. So you had to pick one. Um, so we would like trade who got to have the utilities in their name at each place we lived, you know, get your credit up. Um, so it was harder back then. And, and then to have your child not have your husband's last name was more unusual. So the, like the forms for school or the doctor's office, I think it's more common now, not just because people changed how they were naming themselves and their kids, but there's also divorce, remarriage. And so there's a lot of blended families. And so the idea that you have families with all different last names. Now, when I fill out, you know, by the time my youngest started school you know there's a whole big thing for you to put everything about every family member and their name and their relationship and your ex and you know you're the steps and you know because they're just pretty used to it i'm going to give a shout out to my husband because when we had my daughter since she was the first and she was a girl you know we had to think about a name and he said well i think she should have your last name and i said oh and he said well what kind of statement would it make if your name was important to keep, but the first thing we did when we had a daughter is give her my name. That, so then we had our son. So then it was like, oh, well, okay, now we'll give him. So now we got one of each. Then we had the third one and it was like, okay, <laughs> who gets this one? So I said, I think we should give him your last name. So at least we have a pattern here <laughs> of boy. Because I've told people this many times. I would like go to the doctor's office with the kids when they were little. So I'd be in there with one kid, you know, usually I'm at work, I'm going to daycare, I'm picking them up, you know, rushing over to the doctor visit. And they'd say last name. And I just kind of look at them. <laughs> and I think they'd look at me like, what are you crazy lady? And it would be like, <laughs> my last name or, or the kid and which kid do I have with me today? <laughs> so sometimes that would be like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. You're fighting the system. Yeah, fighting the system. But I think, too, nowadays, there's just so many variations, hyphenated and blended families, and that I think people don't even think twice about it now. Yeah, good to know. Yeah, I was asking uh, Laura about kids and whatnot. So not only do I think this is this podcast will be fun for other people, but it's also me asking people for free advice yeah, <laughs> all the yeah. time in the end. When we looked at everything, we looked at blending our names, making a new name, a whole new family name. But then it was like, well, that has no meaning for either of us. There's no family name then. We looked at hyphenating our names. This was another one. And we talked about hyphenating and then we both used it. And my husband was like, I don't even like to write out Williams. I'm not going to make my kid write out Olson Williams. I was like, yeah. okay. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, pretty progressive. 
it's funny that I asked this question because my own sisters have different last names than me, and we turned out just fine. Um, okay, I'm going to pivot to our game so we don't stay on here too long. Um, and what I have what I've crafted for you, Beth, um, is unlike any other. Is it uh, like Family Feud? I'll do better. You, I think you've got a good shot of winning at this. <laughs> this can be your redemption story here. Are you going to throw it? Are you going to throw it for me? <laughs> so I'll feel better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been, yeah, I made up this game, so yeah, we can we can do that. Um, so this is going to be a choose your own adventure game, and on this adventure, Beth, you'll have to give people dietary advice, and based on your advice, different events will unfold. Okay. Yeah, I'm also nervous here too, Beth. Okay, yeah. All right, so I was like, I was thinking last night, this is a strange concept. Well, I'm going to go with it. Um, okay, so we start our tale in your office. You've had a long day working hard to improve the health of babies, and you decide to go home. You exit your, off you exit your office, lock the door, and turn around to walk out of the building. Do you go left or right to exit the building? Right. Okay, right. You encounter me just dropping in to pick something up from lab after sunbathing for two hours. I'm bright red, but hardly any of it will turn into a tan. I'm starting to get a bit peckish and ask your advice for a snack from the options I have with me. Do you choose an apple or six pounds of cheese? An apple. Okay. Right you are, Beth, I exclaim. <laughs> I jump in the air and click my heels on the ways of my lab. Encountering me reminds you that you bike to work today. You go to get your bike, unlock your bike, and turn around to hop on your bike when you see a puzzled undergrad. The undergrad murmurs, I'm just about to take my final in five minutes. Should I eat a piece of dark chocolate or order a pizza for delivery in the middle of the final? Do you suggest <laughs> the chocolate or pizza to the undergrad? Oh, definitely the chocolate. Got to get your blood sugar up. <laughs> yes. Got to get your brain thinking. Yeah, and just a little bit, not too much. You're probably right. I'll have a, a piece now and celebrate later, says the undergrad. Thanks. The undergrad looks happy. You start riding your bike home, and suddenly your bike transforms into a dragon. The dragon starts soaring through the air. You did it, Beth. You helped enough babies to potentially earn a dragon. I will be your dragon forever if you answer the question correctly. Is kale a leafy green full of all kinds of nutrients? Is kale healthy? Yes or no? Okay, you said healthy. You didn't say tasty, right? I said healthy. <laughs> Actually, I, I like it prepared properly. When I make it, it never tastes good. And my younger sister makes great kale, and she keeps trying to tell me over the phone how to do it, and I keep buying all this kale. <laughs> And then I have to eat it all because it doesn't come out well and my family won't eat it. So, yes, it's healthy. <laughs> yes. Also, you can, I don't know if you tried this, if it turns out bad, just throw it in a stew. Usually dissolves into nothing, but I feel like you still get some of the minerals. Yeah. Which I, you know, that's good. I don't know why I didn't think of that because that's what I do with a lot of my leftovers. I just, a lot of them I just freeze. And then when I'm making something, I get them out and the chili gets to have carrots or whatever. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Yeah. In the middle of our, our, our crazy story, we'll throw out some cooking tips. Um, okay. So you said, yes, kale is healthy. 
You're wrong, says the dragon, and turns upside down, oh. causing you to plummet towards the ground, when suddenly the dragon swoops under you to catch you. Lol, JK, says the dragon. Uh. I wouldn't actually let you plummet. You're A-OK -okay in my book, but all this flying is making me rather hungry. In that bag by my left wing, I packed myself some dragon food. Can you grab me something? You open the bag to see a large golden egg and a silver bag of air puff rice cakes. Do you give the dragon the large golden egg or rice cakes? So if I give him the rice cakes, do I get to keep the egg? I Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Okay, then I'm giving him the rice cakes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The dragon says, yes, that will do. It flies to the ground to eat. As it feasts, it grows larger into the Ur dragon, the most powerful living creature in the universe. You've unleashed me, Beth, and now there is nothing stopping my plans to dominate all of humanity. Before I end you, I'll grant you a final meal from my bag. The dragon holds up gummy bears and gummy worms. Do you choose gummy worms or gummy bears? Oh, gummy bears every time. Gummy bears, okay. The dragon, still growing larger, throws the gummies at you. Fire starts to bellow from the dragon's mouth into the sky when you say, Gee, I thought my last meal would be better than gummies. No, says the dragon. You have said the sacred words of Racklow, the, the green wizard. The dragon starts to fly away, but is sucked into a gummy in your hand, trapped for eternity. You pause to reflect on the day's events. You say to yourself, wow, I guess I need to buy a new bike. You have saved the world with your dietary choices, Beth. Oh, congrats. Oh. Thank you. That's probably the most impact I'll ever have. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> oh. You went into a gummy. Do I eat that? <laughs> you could. You could be. You could not only you'd save the world, but then keep saving the world. I don't know how dragons digest in the human <laughs> gut, but you know, maybe that's uh, interview number two. We'll continue the story. Well, Beth, this has been great. I also thank you for going on this crazy journey with me at the end. Um, learned a lot about your research and also gotten some great advice. And I think other people will be really happy to hear your journey and everything you have to offer. Oh, good. I hope so. I think it's good to share a variety of journeys. That way you can see there isn't a one. There isn't a traditional. At least not anymore, I don't think. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no traditional, everyone should be welcome in science. Yep, exactly. Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush. That's me. I hope you enjoyed a lot of the surprises that came with this episode. Uh, this was fun to record, and all my reactions are genuine. I was super pumped to hear about Family Feud and the naming conventions, even though it completely existed in my family already. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you got to talk to the people and then you reflect on your life. So hopefully you got some of that too. Beth is a wonderful guest and I'm excited to see you around the department once everything gets back opened. So if you know other people like Beth and think they'd be great to interview, send them my way. My Twitter account for the podcast is at Deeper Than Data. Yes, I almost forgot it, but I didn't. Again, that's at Deeper Than Data on Twitter. Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush was produced and created by me, Ben Rush. Music by me, Ben Rush. Questionable, choose your own, blah, blah, blah. questionable, choose your own adventure games and questionable pronunciations. Also by me, Ben Rush. Until next time, be well.
This man is a genius. 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 This 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 man is a genius. Genius. You and you said you edit this, right? I do edit this. Okay, because the only thing is I have a dog here, and if he needs to leave, I'll have to leave. <laughs> yeah, that's totally fine. Because okay. um, I, I the also, door, so. Yeah, it's, I also think sometimes that can make it even more endearing. <laughs> so your, your dog might wind up in the interview. Who knows? What if the dog was just the Ur-Dragon, and it would just be like, woof, woof, woof. You took me from this gummy, and now you've made me your pet. But soon, Beth, I will return whether you repeatedly digest me or not. Or maybe something else. You know, the person voicing the air dragon right now is not feeling that great after getting his vaccine. But it was totally worth it. And the air dragon really recommends everyone does it. That is so interesting. <laughs>